Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We're in Genesis 26 this morning. And I want to tell you the story of a woman named Anne Steele. Anne Steele was a, a, an author of hymns, uh, and she lived about the same time as Isaac Watts in the 1700s. Uh, she was born in Broughton, England in 1717. Uh, she was the daughter of a preacher, but she lived a, a very difficult life. She uh, grew up uh, in this area of England. Her mother died when she was only three years old. She was beset with constant physical affliction. She, she had con- continuous bouts with malaria uh, pain in her stomach and in her teeth, and there's even this kind of thought that she was eventually confined to a wheelchair later on in her life. When she was uh, of the marrying age, she was engaged to be married to a man who died as he was bathing in a river, uh, and she remained single until her death. She just had a constant life of suffering, and yet. This is what's written about her later on. She's described as cheerful and helpful. And her life is one of unaffected humility, warm benevolence, sincere friendship, and genuine devotion. This morning, as we turn to the pages of Genesis 26, I think God wants to show us that he uses adversity and blessing to bring about deeper trust in his promises. That he uses difficulty as well as goodness to bring about what he desires. I'm reminded of an illustration this morning of a, of a silversmith or a metal worker. I know nothing about metalworking, just so we all are clear at this at the beginning. But th- that person takes the raw resource, the steel, the, the metal or whatever, and plunges it into the fire and he sticks it in so that they takes on the heat and the presence, the warmth of that fire, and then pulls it out. And as we might think that we're finished, he starts to hammer out the shape that he desires of that piece of metal. See, when the piece has endured the fire long enough, it must be beaten into shape by the metal worker's hammer. And when it cools too much, it is plunged once again into the fire. And so we also are plunged into difficulty, only to be removed subjected to the blows of God's word, and then plunged back into the fire again. See, this morning, as we look at the life of Isaac in Genesis 26, what we see isn't the, the uh, deep, despairing uh, difficulties of Joseph or of Job or of Jesus, but we find the low-grade frustrations of life. Here's the rhythm that we'll find that in. Isaac receives God's promise in 26, 1 through 5, Isaac has difficulty in Gerar in the bulk of our passage in verses 6 through 22, but then Isaac finds peace in Gerar in verses 23 through 33. I want to pray that God uses our time this morning as we come to his word. Lord, we ask again that you would open our eyes to see, allow our ears to hear, allow us to see you for who you are and understand your purpose in suffering and in difficulty. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. 
Jesse read our first passage in chapter 26, verses 1 through 5, but I'll read it again. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the, the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went down to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with, with you and will bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands." And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statues, and my laws. See, Isaac heads south. A famine in the land happens just like did to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And so Isaac starts to head south and he stops in Gerar and, and God appears to him and tells him not to go any further all the way down to Egypt, but to stay there. And he restates his promise to Isaac in verses 3 through 5. In fact, we see God kind of restating these promises in such a way that they mirror the promises made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, uh, you would remember that we saw that God promised Abraham a people. He promised them a place. He promised them protection and a program. So he promised them a people. He said, I will make you a great nation. Now, Abraham and Sarah had no children at that point in time. He promised them a place, Canaan. Even though they owned no land, he promised that he would give them this particular land and that he promised them protection. He says, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. And then finally, he promised them this program for the nations. He said, uh, through you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And what we see is all of these items are restated to Isaac again. What God had promised to Abraham, he's continuing through the person of Isaac. But for our purposes here this morning, what we're going to find is that three aspects of this promise are going to work like a, a thread through this tapestry of the text. Specifically, God's presence with Isaac is going to be mentioned here in verse 3, in verse 24, and in verse 28. God is promising that he will be with Isaac. He also promises that he will bless Isaac. And this is probably the most uh, noteworthy of the passage uh, that's here because we see this in verse 3 and 12 and 24 and 29. And then finally, God promises to make Isaac fruitful, meaning he's going to have kids. He's going to bless those children. We see that in verses 4 and verse 22. See, the recognition is this morning that God makes big promises to his people, the size of God's promise to Abraham was astounding, uh, but the continued promise to Isaac is also impressive. God is promising to take a family of four, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau, and to make them a nation. He, he promises to take nomads and make them into landowners of some of the most contested land in the ancient Near East. He promises to bring blessing to the whole world through this one individual. See, when we stop and consider the promises that God has made to us, they're equally impressive, aren't they? Consider just what God has said to us. In Matthew 28, 20, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God promises his presence to us. God promises to finish what he started in faith. Philippians 1, 6, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will 
bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. God promises adoption to those who believe in him, John chapter 1, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God promises eternal life to all who believe in him, right? That's what we'll see in the football games this afternoon. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. These promises are big in that they offer something we could never provide for ourselves. Notice that, that Isaac has promised these, these things that he could collect himself, right? He could get land, he could create descendants, he could have blessing, he could do all of that on his own. But the most notable things that are on God's list or on God's mind are the things that Isaac couldn't provide for himself. Isaac couldn't make God be with him. Isaac couldn't make God bless him. And God, Isaac couldn't make God bless his progeny. And so Isaac receives this massive promise from God. The greatest gifts of God are those gifts that we couldn't provide for ourselves. Amen? But the promise to Isaac is about to become very practical for Isaac. It's one thing to have a theoretical knowledge of God's sovereignty and of his blessing and of his presence with you. But God's about to put Isaac into the lab. The, the theology that he's just stated to Isaac, that, that Isaac knows in his head as head knowledge, is about to become very practical. And it's something else entirely for us to live out this faith than to just know about our faith. And so in verses 6 through 22, Isaac is invited into this frustration. Look with me at verse 6 in chapter 26. So Isaac settled in Gerar. And when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, uh, the king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. See, Isaac settles in Gerar like God had told him to, and Isaac thinks in the machinations of his own mind that it would be safer for him to lie about who his wife is than for him to tell the truth. And once again, we get a reminder of the life of Abraham, because Abraham did this not once, but twice. He did this in Genesis chapter 12 and again with another Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20 saying that Sarah was his sister. But of course it backfires, doesn't it? Abimelech's looking out a window and sees Isaac and Rebekah laughing. And surely if you laugh with someone, you are married to them, right? Well, the, the word might actually have something deeper in mind, uh, you know, some kind of deeper meaning. But uh, remember that Isaac's name actually recalls laughter. And so it's kind of a play on Isaac's name as well. Either way, Abimelech kind of gets wise. And so the upshot of all of this is in verse 11, Isaac and Rebekah's safety is guaranteed by this leader, Abimelech. Notice, Isaac's plan kept himself safe, but Rebekah and God's promise at risk. 
But what God works through this circumstance is that he protects both Isaac and Rebekah by the guarantee of this king of the land. And so God is with Isaac, just as he promised in verse 3. He manipulates the situation so that Isaac is blessed. Let's go to scenario number 2 in verses 12 through 16. Isaac is displaced because of God's blessing. Look at verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. What's happening here? Isaac is so prosperous that Abimelech has to kick him out. Namely, Isaac's wealth is a threat to the stability of Abimelech's reign. It's hard for us to imagine that any person would be more rich than their government, right? In fact, that joke uh, about politicians in Chicago, how do you tell it's cold in Chicago? The Chicago politicians have their hands in their own pockets, right? Not in yours. It's hard for us to imagine that anyone would have more wealth than the government. But here, Isaac is so blessed, so wealthy, that he's a threat to Abimelech and to his reign. The description of his wealth in verse 12 through 13 again reminds us of Abraham, who is constantly blessed by Abimelech and by Pharaoh and Egypt. And so God blesses Isaac just as he promised in verse 3. That's scenario number 2. Scenario number 3 said, Isaac leaves, receives room for blessing after conflict. Look at verse 17 through 22. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring of water, The herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. And then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Excuse me. See, Isaac moves out of town, right? Uh, Abimelech comes to him and says, you're too powerful for us. You've got to get out of here. And so Isaac moves out to the valley of Gerar. He moves to the suburbs, as it were, right? And he begins trying to find these wells for all of his sheep and and all of his wealth that he has. And Isaac's servants start digging and, and they find water. But the herdsmen of the Hittites start to kind of quarrel with Isaac's servants. And so what happens is they dig two different wells. The first is named Essek, which means contention. And so there's a, a showdown. There's a fight at the OK Corral there between these two different groups. You know, they're clicking, you know, doing all that stuff. And then they show up at Sitna, and they they dig a well there, and that word means enmity. And so there's another fight that breaks out there. And then finally, Isaac moves to this place that he names Rehoboth, which means broad places or room. And God blesses them. There's no contention, and it highlights that Isaac is not a person who enjoys contention or difficulty. He wants to, to just constantly get away from it. 
He's consistently backing away from difficult interactions, but God is providing a space for him. Notice Isaac's interpretations in verse 22. For now, the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Isaac sees this as a gift from God. See, in verses 6 through 11, Isaac was afraid of coming into this land, right? That's why he lies about who his wife is. That's why he's kind of hiding himself from Abimelech. He's willing to put Rebekah at, at risk to save his own life. But now, in verse 23, he interprets the difficulty of his interactions as God's faithfulness. See, Isaac sees opportunity for fruitfulness. He's saying, what's fruitfulness? If you go back in Genesis, remember the, the phrase that God gives Adam and Eve. He says, Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He says the same thing to Noah twice in Genesis, well, twice in Genesis 9, once in Genesis 8. He says, be fruitful and multiply. See, Isaac has in mind not just that he has land to kind of push out his elbows. He, he has in mind that he can have children, that they can they could multiply here. So God is with Isaac. God blesses Isaac. God multiplies Isaac or gives him room for multiplication. You know, it's, it's interesting to note in the life of Isaac here that, that sometimes God's promises actually cause our difficulty. God's promises actually bring about the difficulties that we experience in our lives. See, sometimes I'll talk with people and they think that, that being Christian means immediate blessing or the immediate removal of their problems. In fact, they have a very specific notion of what their faithfulness to God should translate to in their everyday life. I think I've shared this story before, but my wife, when we were first married, took a job uh, kind of in an, uh, a temporary position. And she was working with this other woman who was having just really hard financial struggles. And it was kind of known at the office, and so they took up a, a kind of a collection for her. Um, and she she described this moment, this, this woman who we don't think knew Christ in any tangible way, but she described this moment where uh, the train song, Calling All the Angels, came on the radio, and she felt like it was a sign from God. And she had this kind of sense of spirituality because she had this deep financial need that she needed, and so then, you know, God is going to provide in all of these things. We forget that worshiping God to receive blessing is really worship of blessing, isn't it? If we worship God to the end that we would be financially provided for or, or whatever else, we're really worshiping the finances or we're really worshiping those situations. See, if we consider the life of Isaac, God's promise actually causes him difficulty with others. Because of God's abundant blessing, Isaac is kicked out of Gerar by Abimelech. Because of God's blessing, he finds adversity with local herdsmen. But Isaac's difficulty is different than others who we typically think of as sufferers, right? Think about the, if we're talking about suffering, we're thinking about Job, right? Job is the guy who is blameless before God. That's what Job 1 and Job 2 both say, that, that Job was blameless in the eyes of others. But because of his blamelessness, Satan brings accu accusation before the throne of God. And the end of it is that Job loses his family, his possessions, and his health. Joseph is one who is blameless in all of his orientation with men, but continually finds himself in deeper and deeper suffering. 
Jesus is one who never sinned, but ends up nailed to a cross. See, but Isaac's suffering is the slow drip of difficulty in a sin-cursed world. It doesn't mark the loss of his health or his wealth or his possessions. It doesn't mean that he loses his family or anything else. Isaac's difficulty isn't the short period of intense suffering. Rather, it's the long stretch of living amidst a people opposed to you. It's the bearing of promise that puts you at odds with so many others around you. See, most often, favor with God means difficulty on earth. Heavenly mindedness means earthly tension. And for Isaac, this meant a constant battle of little difficulties. But it's not all bad. So, what we see in the close of this chapter is that God brings uniquely, as only God can, a time of peace into the life of Isaac. Look at verse 23. From there he went to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? It's a very emotional response from Isaac there. They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. And that same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, uh, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. See, God restates his promise to Abraham in verses 23 through 25. The promise sounds familiar. It's just what we heard in verse 3 and 5. God promises his presence, just like in verse 3. He promises his blessing, just like as we saw in verse 3. He promises that he will multiply Isaac's offspring. Again, uh, this is still a matter of God's faithfulness to Abraham. Just like uh, we see in verse 24, for the sake of my servant Abraham, it, it mirrors the statement in verse 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. God is still faithful to his promise to Abraham even after Abraham is dead. And so what happens then is on the tales of that conversation with God, uh, Abimelech and his entourage kind of show up and they want to strike peace with Isaac in verses 26 through 33. It's interesting to note that Isaac's fear of the Hittites, going back to verses 6 and 7, now has led to the Hittites' fear of Isaac. And what particularly has changed in this conversation? Well, verse 28 draws it out with clarity. See, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. This is exactly what God or what Abimelech said about Abraham in 21-22. God is with you in all that you do. 
So God provides a peace with the Hittites so that Isaac can press into God's promises. So you say, that's great, Jason. What on earth are we talking about here? And we've got all of these stories about Isaac. We've got all of these promises made by God. We've got Isaac who uh, sometimes reacts in fear and sometimes shows great faith. What, what exactly is happening? How do we put our hands around this? Well, first, let's just talk. There's actually two essential storylines that are happening here. See, there's the, the conversation that's happening between Isaac and God. And God continues his faithfulness to Abraham as he makes promises to Isaac. And so there's this vertical line that runs between Isaac and the Lord as the Lord is promising these things to Isaac. But the second aspect of the story is horizontal, and it exists between Isaac and Abimelech, or Isaac and the people of Gerar. And really, Isaac is invited into this kind of difficult, tense relationship. It gets off on a poor footing when Isaac lies about his wife because he's afraid. Uh, But God kind of manipulates these situations and brings about peace between Isaac and Abimelech by the end. But it doesn't happen without a little bit of adversity and difficulty. Isaac digs a well. Uh, He moves out of town. He digs a well to try and plant himself there. And then there's conflict he moves again and, and digs a well, and then there's more conflict. And then he moves a third time until he finally finds a place that they can settle down. See, all of this is a reminder to us this morning that God uses blessing and difficulty as two different tools in his tool belt, tool belt to bring about faith in his servants. God uses blessing and difficulty to form our faith kind of reminds us of our Savior a bit. Jesus was one who existed in perfectly peaceful harmony with his Father. He was consistently blessed by his Father and yet also faced significant suffering. In fact, I'm going to put a passage up on the screen from Hebrews chapter 2. Where the author of Hebrews writes about the Lord, he says, For it was fitting that he, that's God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. Jesus himself endured suffering. And the author of Hebrews draws it out for us this morning that we would see that he was actually made perfect through his suffering. And you might stop and say, wait a minute, Jesus wasn't already perfect? The the Son of God who's existed, uh, pre-existed with God in the presence of God for all eternity, he wasn't already perfect? And you would be right to question that. Really, I think what the author of Hebrews is getting at is, yes, Jesus was already perfect, but God gave opportunity for Jesus to show that perfection in real, tangible, everyday life, that he subjected Jesus to the full gamut of human experience so that Jesus felt sickness. He felt exhaustion. He felt emotion. There's that story in the Gospels where Jesus makes a whip. He turns over the tables of the money changers. He drives out the sheep and he says, my father's house will be called a house of prayer. What else would we describe that as but as the anger of righteousness in Christ? 
See, Jesus is exposed to the fullness of our humanity. He understands what it is to be human like you and I do. He woke up tired like you do. Jesus felt sickness like you and I do. He felt emotion like you and I do. But the difference is Jesus felt the fullness of all of those things, but he responded in faith. Hebrews 4 says this, that he was tempted in every way like, like we are, but was without sin. That Jesus faced the full gamut of human experience, but didn't fail to exhibit faith in his Father. See, the upshot of all of this is to be found in, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, which is just seven verses after that verse that we have on the screen in front of us, where, where the author says this, For because he himself has suffered when he, when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. See, because Jesus went through the difficulty and trials and temptations that that you and I go through, he is able to be our faithful high priest. He's able to uh, kind of empathize with us in our weakness so that he can be a faithful source of power and encouragement to us. The point is that Jesus was not just an example of how to suffer well. Jesus is given as a means to help those who suffer That's the the point of what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's able to help those who are being tempted. See, here's the truth this morning, is that you and I, we can go through difficult circumstances, but if we are not empowered to new living in Christ, we will surely exhibit faithlessness. We will surely exhibit selfishness. You go through difficulties at work. They're paring down, they're making cuts. You have no small amount of anxiety as you look at your bills and you you see everything that you would have to pay if you were to lose your job. This is a, a scenario that many of us face. The truth of the matter is that if you're just left to face that alone without rich faith in Jesus, there's no hope. Galatians 2 promises us this, that that Christ would live in us, that we would be able to face our difficulties and suffering through the resurrected life that he's given us in Christ. So there's Hebrews chapter 2 that tells us God made Christ like us for the purpose of encouraging us, empowering us to new life. I want to bring another truth into this as well from Romans chapter 8. This is the, uh, the pillow verse that you find on the throw pillows in grandma's house, right? God uses suffering to bring about Christ's likeness. Look at Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We all resonate with that. We all love to kind of throw this around. When a friend goes through a difficult time, we say, hey, God works all things to good for those who love him. And we just kind of throw that at them and say, there it is. My duty's done here. I'm out of here. A lot of times we ignore what happens in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son 
in order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. See, what is Paul getting at here? What is Paul trying to drive at? He's, he's inviting us to this reflection. And I, I want to just, just kind of put down our, our preexistent knowledge of this verse and just kind of uh, approach it anew this morning. What is the nature, uh, first let's back up, to whom is the promise made? Verse 28 tells us, we know that for those who love God... And then later on in the verse, for those who are called according to his purpose. For whom does this promise exist? It exists for those of us who love God, who are called according to God's divine purpose. Well, what is the nature of the promise itself? It's right there in verse 28. That all things work together for good. That term, work together, is the word from which we get synergy that everything is working in coordination and collaboration to one specific end. Well, what is that end? This is where verse 29 is so important. See, the end of God is that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. That he's predestined us, he's foreknown us to be conformed to Jesus Christ. Why? in order that Jesus might be the firstborn amongst many brothers, in order that Jesus might receive maximum glory and honor in your life. So as we take in the full weight of this verse and what it's saying, we're seeing that God uses everything all the time in the life of everyone who loves him for the purpose of making them like Christ to bring honor to Christ. There is no wasted moments in the economy of God so that every ounce of your suffering, every ounce of your difficulty, every hardship you face, everything you see that is hard in life is renewed and reused by God for his purpose. That he cuts off the edges that he doesn't want to be there and he shapes you and molds you to look more like Jesus. And as you look more like Jesus, you become his image bearers that fill the earth. Wasn't that the plan in Genesis 1? Fill the earth, subdue it. See, we become conformed to the image of Christ in order that he might be firstborn. So there is a sense in which God made Christ like man in suffering so that he could make man like Christ in suffering. He has given us Jesus in the incarnation, embodied him in human flesh, and exposed him to all of the hardships that we ourselves face so that he could live perfectly, so that he could die sacrificially, so that he could be raised again and sit at the Father's right hand constantly advocating for us, his people, so that you and I could take on the person of Jesus, so that we could be changed. So it's upon us this morning, brother and sister, to embrace hardship like Jesus embraced hardship. To just take that porcupine and just hug it, right? To warm up to difficulty. To invite hardship. To rejoice in persecution. As James says, to rejoice in various trials. 
See, Jesus endured the cross, as Hebrews 12 tells us, he endured the cross because of joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus embraced hardship as a means to everlasting, eternal joy. Let's also, by the power of Jesus, embrace the hardship of life so as to bring maximum exaltation to Christ. Amen? See, maybe you're here this morning and you're in various phases of suffering or difficulty. There is the possibility here that your life is just peaches and cream. I mean, there's just no difficulty. We've, we've gone through seasons like that, haven't we, where everything is good, that we haven't suffered much. There's also the possibility for us this morning that we can be in a season of life where we're watching others around us suffer greatly. And then finally, there are those of us who are in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the storm. We ourselves are suffering. So what do we do? Speak first to those that, that haven't suffered. I can just call you to a season of just engaging with the promises of God. Notice what, what happens here in the life of Isaac. Isaac is receiving the promises of God and then seeing them work out in his everyday life. And God's promising these massive things in 26, 1 through 5. And then Isaac sees them all working out in particularity, verses 6 through 22. Maybe you could just train your eyes and your heart and your mind to look for the blessings of God, the practical outputs of, of the applications of God's promise. See, you look at the stupid little things, the dog that, that lays on your lap at night that, that comforts you as a gift and a grace from God, the, the car that you want to kick the tires in is still a grace to you from God, isn't it? The job that you don't always appreciate, it's a grace from God. And overwhelmingly, the position that we have in Christ is a grace from God that provides foundation for all the rest of our life. See, we can tune our eyes and our heart and our mind to look for God's grace and his mercy, that we can look through the scenarios and the circumstances of our life because Romans 8.28 says that God works all things for those who love him. We can look and say, everything in my life that exists is a part of God's purpose and his plan for me to be receiving grace. What if you're here this morning and you have friends around you who suffer and you want to know how to engage with them? Can we just say, first of all, this is, this is difficult. You know... If you're married, you might know this sometimes. It's, it's almost easier for you to go through sickness than to watch your spouse go through sickness. It's almost easier for you to go through trial than to watch your spouse go through trial. We should, we should have our hearts tuned into this idea that watching brothers and sisters suffer should also invite us into some sense of suffering. That's what Paul says in Romans. He says that we weep with those who weep. We, we actually suffer alongside those who suffer. My first encouragement to those who have friends who suffer is that I just invite you to avoid easy answers and quick fix solutions. Sometimes Christians are the worst, right? When there's difficulty, when there's hardship, 
I'd come along and say, Romans 8.28, okay, we'll see you later. Call me in the morning. God has a plan. And we don't enter into their suffering. We kind of just lightly graze over the top and act like we've done our good Christian duty. What does it look like for a Christian to actually sit alongside someone who suffers, someone who has difficulty, to empathize with them, to to weep with them, to pray with them, to encourage them? So avoid easy answers and quick fix solutions. Engage in being present with them. Not just physically present, but mentally, emotionally present with them. Say, hey, tell me about it. Tell me about what's going on. How can, how can I help you? What, what can I do to be present with you? Don't provide quick answers just right off the tip of your tongue. Engage with them. But finally, and most importantly, your job, if you are a friend of a sufferer, your job is to consistently lift their eyes off of their difficulties and toward their Savior, Jesus Christ. That's one of the ways that you can serve them best. To say, yeah, that stinks. Now, I'm just going to do this for a moment because I would hope you would do the same for me. But remember, this is short-lived. And someday you'll be in God's presence and all of this will be wiped away. All of this will be done with. What about those who are in the midst of suffering? For those of us who feel like we're that piece of metal plunged into the fire, taken out, hammered, plunged into the fire again, what do we do? Can I just encourage you with what we've already said? No part of your suffering is wasted. Everything has purpose. In, in God's overview and oversight, everything is used. There's not a moment in your day that, that God doesn't see and God doesn't turn into some benefit for you in his grace. That might not mean you eradicating your, your situation or, or eradicating your suffering. It might mean that you just, through that hardship, invited it to deeper faith in Christ. And so if you're suffering this morning, the biggest encouragement I can have for you is to cling to Christ, to take these promises that he has given to us and to just bank on them. You see, the way that we get beyond our temporary circumstances is to consider our eternal trajectory in Christ, right? To say, this thing is short-lived. Even if it's a terminal cancer, even if it's a chronic illness, something that I will deal with for the rest of my life, I can look at it and say, but that too is short-lived in the long-term perspective of eternity. That someday God will raise me to new life as he has raised Christ to new life, and he will give me eternity without this in my existence. And I can hope and bank on those truths that God has spoken to me. And I wonder if, if you are truly suffering, if you might come to someone in the body and talk to them about your difficulty. Some of you are suffering silently. And I've got to tell you, God has given you a body to come alongside you and help you. I just 
plead with you to not do that silently by yourself because one of the greatest gifts God gives you is the church. To take your eyes off of your problems and to fix them upon Jesus Christ. We opened with the hymn writer Anne Steele and I just wanted to to invite you to consider some of her lyrics to the song, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. She writes this, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, On thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. This hymn closes with this line. It says, thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope, attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. God's mercy seat is open still. God invites us to say, your yoke is difficult. Come and find an easy yoke, an easy burden with me. Let's be those who take our sufferings and our difficulties and take them back to the cross rather than trying to drum up enough strength and energy for another day. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now that that's exactly what you would accomplish in us. Teach us to take our difficulties to you. Help us not to be those who are self-reliant and who try to work out our own difficulties on our own by our own strength. But teach us and train us to rely upon your goodness and your mercy pry our fingers, as it were, from the grip that we have on this world and our comforts and allow us to find hope in your son's death and resurrection. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.